whatever complexion that you are, just love yourself. I guess just throughout high school, I just learned to like appreciate my skin and realize like, hey, there's people out there like getting tans and stuff like that. They they out here trying to look like us. Like, what's up? <laughs> so I'm very I'm very very blessed to to see myself in this way, and I'm very happy with it. If anyone was to tell me to bleach my skin, I'd be like, no, out my face. Like, my melanin's popping, it's enough. Like, leave me alone. <laughs> That's it. This is the Unheard Youth Podcast. We're focusing on newcomer youth voices all across Canada and featuring what they have to say about migration, identity, and belonging. I'm your host, Rose Eva Forks Jenkins. We started off this episode with some words from Hanifa. I chose this section because I loved hearing the passion in Hanifa's voice as she talks about her journey with self-appreciation. Her words inspired the title for this episode, which is Learning to Appreciate Your Skin. Hanifa's words remind us how important it is to celebrate who we are. It also shows that this is not always an easy process for everyone, When we say learning to appreciate your skin, it's a metaphor for appreciating who we are as people. But at the same time, this title can also be taken very literally, as the youth talk about the way that they're treated due to their skin color. In this episode, we hear more from the members of Edmonton-based newcomer youth group, Sky Club. This is the second episode where we hear from the group. They were also featured on our previous episode, Balancing Cultures where they talked about the community that Sky Club provides. On this episode, we hear more from that conversation as the youth discuss their challenges and successes when it comes to celebrating who they are. Later on in the show, we also feature a conversation with Bashir Muhammad, Andrew Jamaga, and Barnabas King about the power of words. But first, here is Joanne, Giroux, Hanifa, and Sarah from Sky Club. Hi, my name is Joanne Lackle. Hi, my name is Hanifa Kaligira. Hi, my name is Sarah Gore. Hey, my name is Giroux Lackle. Do you feel safe in this country? <laughs> yes and no, uh, mostly because of like, because I'm like, I'm Muslim, but I'm also African too. So I have both of those going on. And the reason why I uh, I said yes is because, like, it's it's not as crazy as it is in, like, in the States and, like, other countries when they see a Muslim or, like, a black person in general. <coughs> but, like, here in Canada, there will be, like, incidents where you're going to come across, like, racial incidents where, like, kids, when they question you or, like, they judge you in any way. Like, there's one time I took the bus and I got off and this old guy, he walked right past me and he told me to go back to where I came from. And it's kind of me being me, like, initial reaction was to yell back and be like, just because I'm not from here, like, I'm allowed to be here. You're not from here, too. Like, you're just as much as an immigrant as I am, too. So don't be coming for me like that sort of thing. Or, like, being told that, like, my religion is, like, a bad thing. Like, it's saying uh, saying that we're, like, nothing but, like, terrorists or something like that. Like, it's difficult and it's it's kind of hard to live here. Cause there'll there'll be there'll be times where they're gonna attack us and they tell us to go back to where it came from or like they'll tell us how bad we are when they don't really don't know us like that. With racism, my parents we are our religion we're Catholic and 
th throughout my whole entire life, I've been up in a public school. And the reason to that is because my brothers experienced racism in a Catholic school. So my father came up, came up with a solution to like try and shield us from racism. And he also tried to do that by trying to convince my mom to take us back home. <laughs> Which, yeah. <laughs> but my parents were well aware of racism and they tried to get us not to face it, but like it's hard because no matter where I go, my, my race is <laughs> following me. I embraced my race to a full extent. And with my sister and I, we were not given like Bible names because my father believed that it's a form of assimilation to try to get us to, to change our names to fit into society with Eurocentric names. And in a sense, I'm thankful for that because <laughs> I don't want to be assimilated to just try to fit into this culture just because my name is seen different when it should be embraced to a full extent for being different and diverse. So, yeah. Yeah, even, like, with the whole entire name thing, like, growing up, it'd be difficult for teachers to, like, say my name. It's like, the, like my name's Hanifa, like, spelled H-A-N-I-F-A. And for some reason, when it came to attendance, they saw my name, they'd be like, um, Hanifa? I'm like, the I is not silent. It's there. It's there. It's very clearly there. And, like, it was very difficult, and the kids would just kind of laugh, ha-ha, Hany, 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 Hanifa, or something like that, or, like, even on the announcements when they're gonna say like your full name, that that two kids would just kind of look at me weirdly. They're like, um, "How do you say your last name?" And then I just kind of explain it. There's this one. There's this at this one point. I don't know. This was elementary. I don't know which grade it was, but there was this kid in my class, and uh, he would make fun of my last name, and it was Caligara, and he would call me Gary. I don't know where and why, but he'd be like Gary. Hey, Hanifa Gary, or something like that. And I just, I never really understood it at the time. I didn't know what he was doing. But now that I look back on it, I'm just kind of sit there and like, that was like my name. Like, you really should have not like made fun of it. Like, we're both, we're both foreigners. We're like, we're not from here. Like, I would have not done that to you. Like, whatever your last name was, that's your last name. Like, do you like have like have that chance to like embrace it and stuff like that? And I never really had the chance to because like. When it came to like tests and stuff like that, or like handing in projects, I don't put my last name. Like I just put my first name because kids, I had a feeling kids would make fun of it. Like now, I just don't care. It's like my last name now. It's a part of me. Yeah, building off of what Joanne said, me and my brother were both given Catholic names. Like my name in the Sudanese community is Kapuki, and that's what my mom and my dad and all my cousins and family call me. But in school and like on like official documents, my name is Sarah Gore because my mom didn't want me or my brother to get bullied or face racism based on my name. And I think it's ridiculous. Like, and you, like, Kanifa, like, your name's not even these like that. <laughs> like, if you can say Arnold Schwarzenegger, you can say Hanifa Caliagara. <laughs> like, uh, living here in Canada, do I feel safe? I agree. Yes and no. Because when I'm black <laughs> and I see so many things and actually experience things where, you know, I go through or people and myself share um, experiences through discrimination, racism um, faced in the real world, basically. So 
I was, how old would you be in the seventh grade? 13, right? 13, I was 13. <laughs> and I was walking home and I was with my friends who were, one was Vietnamese, the other was, she's indigenous and El Salvadorian. And the other one was Irish, right? So we're walking, pretty diverse group. You know, we go, we get Slurpees, we're having a good time, going home from school. And I remember there's this group of white guys in a car. It was a black truck, I remember. <laughs> and they're just like, can I, can I say the word? <laughs> I stopped Joanne here because I wanted to pause and think about the question that she just asked. As you can probably guess, what Joanne is about to say next is a controversial word. As a white person, I don't think it's ever appropriate for me to say it, so I'll just say the N-word. When making the podcast, I also had the question, can this word be used on the podcast? And should it be used? This word was said in the context of a real-life experience that happened to Joanne. This is Joanne's story, and I want to represent that story in the way that feels most authentic to her. My first instinct, as you might be able to hear me saying in the background, was to tell Joanne to go for it. But I don't think I'm the right person to decide whether the word should be included or not. So I asked some folks who could tell me about the history of that word being used in Canada. I had a discussion with Bashir, Andrew, and Barnabas about the historical uses of that word as well as their own experiences with it. But first, I'll let Joanne finish the rest of her story. I'll also give a content warning for explicit language. Can I, can I say the word? Oh. <laughs> it was like, nigga. <laughs> and <laughs> they drove off. And I'm over here like, whoa, this is the first time someone's ever called me like that word. Like, not who was, I guess, European or whatever they were. And I was shocked. I was like, whoa, what's happening? And I was fueling. Like, I was so mad. I chased the car two blocks. <laughs> and they finally stopped. But they were, like, harassing a girl. So I took that as an opportunity to say what I had to say. And I went off. I don't remember what I said, but I almost slapped the guy in the back seat, like, I feel like it was a coward move <laughs> for you to say that word and then drive off. So if you're listening, I want you to meet me at the same spot. <laughs> I'm still bad. <laughs> I was a whole child. And I guess that's when I, I think, I feel like that was when I experienced, you know, racism for the first time so directly. And I don't know, it was just crazy and wow, I don't I was so mad and ever since then I've experienced other things but that one situation just stood out for me and I hope that never happens to me or anyone around me. I, it's not a good feeling. But the funny thing is I saw them again and they were just smirking and laughing because I guess they thought that I would I don't know, I think they took it as an opportunity to go like viral on social media and it was just, it was whack. Hello, my name is Rose Eva Forks Jenkins for the Unheard Youth Podcast.
First of all, can I get everyone to introduce themselves? Yep. Uh, thanks for having me. My name is Bashir Mohammed. In my day job, I work for the provincial government, but in my free time, I like looking into uh, Edmonton's black history. Hello, uh, my name is Andrew Jimager. I'm a student at McEwen University right now, and I, I also work with PIPE. It's a police and youth engagement program under Rich Edmonton. And uh, my name is Barnabas Kenny. Um, I just graduated this year, and I'm going to McEwen in September. Um, I also worked with PIPE as well. So just to explain why we're here, uh, so previously I was recording with a youth and they told a story where this youth was walking home from school and a truck full of white dudes basically yelled the N-word at her. And when she told the story, she said, oh, can I actually like say the word? And I was like, yeah, say it. When I thought about it afterwards, whether we should have that word on the podcast or not, that's something I'm not really sure about. There's words that you're not supposed to broadcast, and that's one of them. But then again, this is a real story that someone went through. So I kind of don't really know what the answer is to that question. Um, I'm a white person. So it's not really my place to make a decision about uh, that word. I've never experienced that. I don't know what that's like. So I'm really grateful for everyone else to share their experiences um, with this topic. First of all, I thought we'd start with Bashir giving a history of the way that the N-word is used in Alberta in certain contexts, and then other uh, folks can jump in when you feel comfortable. And then at the end of the conversations, maybe you can give some opinions on whether to include the word in the podcast or not. So Bashir, you wrote a blog post entitled Canada's Racist Geography and What We Can Do About It. So I guess to provide some context. So I came to Canada when I was relatively young, and uh, that word, I heard it while I was growing up, but I never really understood the the context for it in Edmonton, especially because when I was growing up, I thought black people were a new thing to Edmonton. But uh, a few years ago, I started looking into Edmonton's black history. And uh, I guess to put it simply, ever since white people have been here, black people have been here too. The earliest recorded black Edmontonian was here in Fort Edmonton in the 1700s, and they've been here consistently. When they're documented, though, they're often not referred to by their full names. They're often referred to by the N-word and then their first name. Uh, So, for example, John Ware is is a famous example. He was a black cowboy in southern Alberta. He introduced cattle into southern Alberta, and he was one of the pioneers, actually, for the Calgary Stampede. Uh, But when he passed away, the provincial government wanted to honor him, so they found a mountain, and they called the mountain Nigger John Ridge. And that lasted until 1970. And there was also a 4-H club, which is like, uh, it's a rural club that uh, raises animals. They had a club called the Nigger John 4-H Club. And that was a name put on him. There was an interview with his daughter talking about how no one would say the name to his face. And if they did, there was actually one case where he was in a bar in Calgary and he knocked the guy out and actually paid his hospital bill. (laughs) So this name was put on... uh, these black Albertans. And the legacy persisted through geography and locations. So if you go on the uh, federal government website, you can search whatever slur and you'll get a few dozen results. Some of them are rescinded, uh, but a lot of them still exist. For example, there's still a Negro Lake in uh, BC. Uh, There's still a Nigger Rapids in Quebec. And uh, this is a legacy from that time where black people uh, in the historic text and in news articles were robbed of their names. So that's just kind of some background. When we talk about Edmonton and the place we're at, 
uh, through a lot of the research, an interesting trend I found was a lot of the famous black Edmontonians, black Albertans, they don't have sites named after them. And if they do, it's with the slur. But a lot of the people who were prejudiced towards them have places named after them. So Frank Oliver, for example, he was in charge of immigration policy federally when the large waves of black uh, Americans came into Canada. He has the neighborhood Oliver named after him near the Hotel McDonald where we're nearby. There's a Frank Oliver Park, for example. And a lot of that history is either whitewashed. Actually, in Gibson Block, which is the, it's a flat iron building just a few blocks from here, uh, there used to be a sign that said white help only, but it's literally washed with white paint. This history hasn't really been acknowledged, and at the end of the post I talk about how one way we can do it is by, A, honoring those sites uh, with those people's names. For example, uh, Negro Lake. That, that's named after somebody who drowned in the lake. Let's find what their name was and name the lake after them. So that's one approach, but I'm sure there's many others. I had a conversation, and these, um, you know, when, when you get into a certain level or through school, you go all the way, and then you, uh, let's say you become a doctor, right? right. And then one, um, one of your friends who is there with you, or maybe one day you come along someone, and they'll be like, you're only there because you're a minority, and they right. need minorities there. And it doesn't matter how much contribution you've made there, mm-hmm. they'll discredit that, and it's only because you're like this uh, minority. Just because you're black, they want black people there, that's why they got you there. Or just because you're whatever, you know, or just because you're female, that's why they got you there. Yeah. Which is kind of like, it's kind of bad. I, I, I get, it's really bad, I guess, because if, if you worked so hard your whole life to achieve this and then only for someone to say that, oh, you're only here because you're black. So your qualifications and stuff don't matter at all. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. And like, if you look at some fields like health, mm-hmm. like healthcare, like you mentioned, uh, in Edmonton, actually, uh, in the 1920s and 30s, black people were refused entrance into some hospitals, and they were also refused entrance into uh, training to be a nurse. So there's a case in 1938 where a black woman applied to be a nurse, but she was denied. And if you look uh, at the legacy of that, all the way to the 1980s at the U of A nursing graduation class, you don't see a single black face. And, and that's from that decision in 1938 uh so it's interesting because like when people mention oh just you know you're here because of of, you know because you're black or whatever Mm -hmm. they're ignoring uh all the barriers it took you to get to get there uh the historical barriers but personal barriers too it's interesting because anytime i go to the archives the archivists don't really know what i'm looking for or they don't really understand my research question and a lot of it, too, is, like, destroyed, for example. Uh, Lulu Anderson, she was a black Edmontonian, and in 1922, uh, you know the old Enbridge building on Jasper and 102? Uh, that used to be a theater called the Metropolitan Theater, and she went to purchase the ticket, but she was denied entry. Uh, she had a six-month court case. I tried to find her case file, but it was destroyed in the 70s. So a lot of it, too, is either, like, whitewashed or destroyed. I don't think they destroyed it just because it was a case about a black person, but I think it's, they didn't find that case important, which says a lot about archivists back in the day. And it does have a lot of effects now. You know, if you're a, bl- if you're a young black youth growing up in Edmonton and you hear stories about Viola Desmond, uh, she's going to be on the $10 bill. And I was talking to this one class and I asked them if they knew anything about black history. And one of them, she raised her hand and she said, Viola Desmond, which 
when you have heroes to look up to growing up that you can connect to locally, it, it just makes you feel more connected to the province. I think, like, growing up personally, there's not, like, uh, there's not a lot of talk or, like, in school, for instance, you don't hear a lot about black history in Canada, especially in Edmonton. Um, growing up, saying, like, social studies class, you know, it's something I'd always look for, but it's not anything I would find in class, at least. And I also feel like, I feel like the more as, like, we became, like, less of minorities here, the more people started showing, like, somewhat of, like, respect in, in a sense. Like, they were, like, somewhat, like, hiding the racism. Like, for instance, no one's going to call you, like, a nigger or a nigger, like, in front of you. But, like, behind your back, like, there's always that low-key racism that's there. But, like, we don't see it. It's not really apparent to us, but, like, still there. Hmm. Um, I'm curious as to what that low-key racism looks like. Well, like, for me, like, um, I personally experienced it. Like, for instance, like, the school I went to for my high school is, uh, I was, like, a really big minority, I guess, because there uh, wasn't a lot of black people in our school, right? But, but like, as I got to know uh, some people in the school and stuff like that, and then they talked to me about, like, their first thoughts on me when they saw me, and some people like, oh, I thought you were, like, scary or something or something like that. It was, like, kind of weird. And, like, there's stuff that they would do, like, events or activities they would do, and, you know, people wouldn't expect you to come and join them or, like, they wouldn't think you would be interested in that. I think it, it it all goes back to like how when someone is racist, racist or whatever, they don't talk to you. They they don't like call you names in your face, right? And like three summers ago, I was working construction, uh, construction, right? At one of the companies, the West End, and then some guy just drove by, and told me, "Go home, you fucking nigger," right? And then I was like, uh, "Wait, what?" Like by the time I realized, he, he said this, and then he sped off, right? He just sped off, and then uh, my coworker came and she was like, "Are you okay?" Like, and I was just like, uh, wow. Like, you know, you, you, you wouldn't expect someone to, to say this. Like, they wouldn't normally say in front of your, your face because they're ashamed or, I don't know, just some kind of ignorance. But they, they don't have the energy, you know, to, to, to come. They, they don't come with the same energy. But they will do it when you're not looking or when they feel like they're already safe and, like, there's nothing you can do. Actually, the most I've heard it is when I'm riding my bike and someone like yells it out the window or like whatever. And the funniest thing is sometimes they, they catch a light and then I'm able to catch up to them and, and they don't look at me. They, they just keep looking straight. Uh, yeah, it's always, it's just weird. Like if they think they can just like say it and run away then. And, and, and now people are more afraid because with cameras, because like the second you take out their camera, they're going to be more, you know, yeah. cautious. Yeah, I feel like, like specifically like for Canadians, no one wants to be labeled as racist. And everyone's seen as, like, a good person and stuff like that. But, like, it seems like everyone already has their standards for certain groups and, like, the beliefs for certain groups. And, like, it, it won't come out, you won't see it, but, like, the way they, like, interact with you, you kind of feel it. It's, it's interesting because, like, uh, historically, I, I've also noticed that people don't like being called racist, even though they do something that's racist. Like, in 19... 24, uh, you know, Borden Park, like on the east side, uh, black people are not allowed to swim there. And uh, the city councilor who was pushing that motion forward, he said, I have nothing against uh, the colored races, but there's a line of distinction that must be drawn between the white and black races. And he was like very uh, offended when they called him racist. 
Um, I think that's kind of where my role as a white person steps in, because you're talking about how this is anonymous, right? This is like people who, like you said, they bring it behind closed doors. They might not be racist to your face, but behind those closed doors, they are. And since I'm a white person, I get to experience them being racist behind closed doors, right? Like, white people think they can talk to me about like, oh, you know, like what those people are like. And that's like, I think that's why it's my role as a white person to be like, no, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Let's have a conversation about this. Like, what do you think white people's role in racism should be? I mean, I guess the very first thing is uh, to to listen. It's, it's very easy to have that like really defensive reaction, but to listen and understand, uh, be open to understanding. I guess that's like the most important thing. Because I think like the reason why uh, the reason why I don't confront racism 100% of the time is because I'm worried about their reaction and their backlash. And if that could be lessened, then that would be okay. And I think that could happen with this being a universal understanding rather than that defensiveness. If they see something not right, they should challenge it and like try to educate the people around them. Because a lot, a lot of things we see happen is out of fear or ignorance, really. And if you're at a family function or get together and someone's like yeah you know these people are like this like this and you're like no actually no i know a few people and they're not like this not everyone's like this this maybe this is just two percent of the people but you can't you know generalize the whole people like that based on that you know i guess one example is this podcast uh, because it's not just like us having this conversation that's going to go out to a you know fairly decent audience who probably works in these areas so yeah, I guess this is one example. Being able to have these conversations without us having to uh, feel defensive or anything. It's interesting because like, a lot of those reactions are fairly defensive. But like, if there is a genuine will, like I don't know, like I don't really hold grudges that much. But like, if somebody was racist to me and they had like a general will to correct that or like uh, reconcile it, then I'd be totally fine. But a lot of it is that very defensive crying or, you know, maybe they'll even, I've, I've seen GoFundMe fundraisers set up for people who lose something because they did something like that. It's like, blows my mind. Uh, in terms of using the N-word on the podcast? I mean, uh, like, just my thought is if, uh, if, if they use the word and, and they're comfortable after the fact of having it included, then personally, I think it's fine. Because yeah. it, it's a part of their story. Yeah, same. Yeah, I think it's totally fine. Like, I, s I feel like the truth shouldn't be censored, and the people need to like, because people like to hide behind like, behind stuff. So I feel like people need to like actually hear it, you know, and like actually feel it, kind of. You just heard my discussion with Bashir, Andrew, and Barnabas. Thank you so much for your valuable input. The Youth at Sky Club also had some thoughts about the use of the word on the podcast. They also discussed the context for when the word should and shouldn't be used. Here's what they had to say. I feel like censoring that word is like censoring our past. Because it was said in the past. And I feel like people who don't want to hear it don't want to accept that, yeah, that happened. They're conscious, I mean, unconsciously or consciously not wanting to believe that my ancestors did that they don't want to believe that but in all facts it happened and 
no one's gonna we're not gonna move forward by ignoring what has, what has happened we're gonna move forward by talking about it so that everybody else understands the impact that it has had on the world and i feel like white people don't really understand that they they i feel like the ones that do say it, they hear us saying it and they're like okay I can say because they're saying it. No, you can't because you don't actually understand the pain that's behind that word. You know, that's where I stand with why white people can't say it. If you're not black, don't say it. That's all I gotta say. Don't say it. The N-word was used to make black people feel inferior. And to this day, it's still being used. So for people to choose or people do not want to hear it, like, I understand, but to this day, <laughs> black people are still being called the N-word. And it really just shows how history, like, nothing has really changed. There's always going to be someone feeling like they're superior. And we are the unheard youth voices, so you have to listen. You just heard Lorit, Aisha, Joanne, and Giroux sharing their thoughts on the use of the N-word. Next up, we return to the original conversation with Joanne, Jeru, Hanifa, and Sarah. In the next section, they talk about their experiences with colorism. To give a quick definition, colorism is the prejudice or discrimination against individuals with a dark skin tone, typically among people of the same ethnic or racial group. Here's more from Sky Club about the impacts of colorism and how they learn to appreciate their skin. I don't know what to say about colorism because like for me growing up I never realized how different people would treat me because I was I am a lot of a deeper complexion so for me it took me till like I was in I want to say like the seventh grade to like really fully or like the sixth grade to really fully acknowledge um how people portrayed me as and I don't know as growing up I just see as you know in elementary, kids not wanting to play with me, like, and just stuff like that. But growing up, I used to have this perspective of, okay, I'm going to marry a white guy so, like, we could have, like, light-skinned kids or, like, lighter-complexion kids. Like, I had a weird fantasy about having lighter-complexion kids. <laughs> and, you know, as I grew up, I realized it was more of a self-hatred thing because I, I – then at that time, I still do notice that, you know, I got treated a lot different. And, you know, in my head, being dark skinned wasn't beautiful because I never saw dark skins being displayed like today's day and age. And I want to say it impacted me, like growing up in a bad way, in a good way, because in a good way, it taught me how to love myself and be like, you know what? No, I'm I'm that girl. Like I am the shit, <laughs> regardless of how I look or what my complexion is. Like I am the shit, and you know I don't. It's just it contributed to the way I, you know, I guess viewed myself and viewed how I wanted myself to be in the future. Like as weird as this sounds, like my family or like just people I know like women they always like bleach their skins and then they have the audacity to tell me love yourself like <laughs> my voice is cracking but they tell me love yourself and it's like 
how am I supposed to love myself if you can't even love yourself and you're putting these products, chemical products on your skin so that you can be more lighter and fair complexion just to fit in with society? Like, how does that work? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I just didn't realize until I entered high school and then I started to, like, really see, like, a lot of, like, like not a lot of, like, role models just going uh uh, uh, coming up and whatnot, like Lupita, uh, Naomi Campbell. Like I didn't know about Naomi Campbell. I did not know about these black models at all. I didn't know about Tyra Banks. I didn't know about any of those people until I was like in high school, and I started to see them talk about it, and them just being like, whatever complexion that you are, just love yourself. And I just, I guess, just throughout high school, I just learned to like appreciate my skin and realize like, hey, there's people out there like getting tans and stuff like that. They they out here trying to look like us, like. What's up? <laughs> so I'm very, I'm very, very blessed to to see myself in this way, and I'm very happy with it. If anyone was to tell me to bleach my skin, I'll be like, no, out my face. Like my melanin's popping. It's enough. Like leave me alone. <laughs> That's it. For um, the longest time ever, I did not see color, and I know it's hard for people to like, you know, I, it's the truth. I did not see color. You know, everyone was my friend, regardless of. Yeah, I did not care um, what complexion you were. If you were my friend, you were my friends. And <laughs> and also, I didn't realize I was black, to be honest. Yeah. I did not realize I was, you know, black. <laughs> I didn't realize it until the seventh grade. It took me the longest time ever when I experienced a fake friend and... This person, um, I was, yeah, we were friends, or at least I thought we were, and she told me one time, well, she didn't tell me, her friend was said that she was talking about me, and she said, this is what this person calls you, she calls you a shadow, and I'm just like, I'm a shadow, you know, I look at my skin, I'm like, I'm dark, <laughs> Honestly, I did not realize it, I really did not, and I think that was a awakening call for me, that of my complexion yeah yeah I can I can relate to that I didn't I didn't really realize it until like I think oh until I entered high school I was very late on this because in in my house we never really talked about it honestly about the whole entire complexion part and just growing up I just in my head I had this image like I'm not that dark I probably look like everyone else I look cute like whatever it's not a big deal and it didn't hit me until I was like in junior high throughout the years. Kids would always make jokes and be like, when the lights went out, they'd be like, Hanifa, where are you? I hated it so much. Always, always, always. And like, if not that, they'll, um, they'd be like, you're really dark. You're dark as like the moon or whatever. Or not the moon, the moon's white. What am I saying? You, you look like charcoal, like all those things. And even in elementary too, kids, they were so ignorant during that time. Yeah, and again, what Hanifa said earlier about how she did it, I think it was Joanna or Hanifa who they didn't realize they were black <laughs> or like just dark skinned <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah, for me, it was the same thing. Like, I never like, I never like, I never like really acknowledged it. Like, I knew I was black, but like, I didn't think it was a problem. I was like, you know, I'm living my best life, you know, I'm playing outside, you know, I'm having fun. And then, you know, for me, what I feel like contributed contributed to that is the fact that, you know, I went to public school, so 
I was around diverse people, you know. I always befriended people who were diverse. My group of friends in my whole life were always like diverse, you know. This episode is entitled, Learning to Appreciate Your Skin. In this episode, the youth showed us how learning to appreciate your skin can be very difficult. We heard about the many challenges that these youth have faced, from hearing comments from others at school, to strangers yelling at them from the street, and a lack of representation in the media. These are barriers that youth should not have to face. However, the youth that we hear from move through these situations with a strength and confidence that is inspiring and that we can all learn from. That's it for this episode of the Unheard Youth Podcast. Thank you so much to Joanne, Giroux, Lorit, Aisha, Sarah, and Hanifa for sharing your stories. A big thank you as well to Bashir, Andrew, and Barnabas for their conversation. Thank you so much for sharing some important Canadian history, as well as sharing your own personal experiences and opinions. We would like to thank our friends and partners at CJSR 88.5 FM and the Edmonton Community Foundation. Thank you to Chivenji for providing the music featured in the podcast. This project has been made possible in part by the Government of Canada. Ce projet a été rendu possible en partie grâce au gouvernement du Canada. And don't forget to check us out on social media. Let us know your thoughts by commenting on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our username is Unheard Youth Podcast. We wanted to tell you a bit more about the land where these recordings took place. The city of Edmonton is also known as Amiskwichiwiskaigan, which means Beaver Mountain House in the Nehio language. It is located on Treaty 6 territory, which was signed on August 23, 1876, in Fort Carlton, Saskatchewan. The total area of the treaty stretches from western Alberta through Saskatchewan and into Manitoba, and includes over 50 First Nations. The Centre for Race and Culture acknowledges that we are located on Treaty 6 territory, traditional homelands for many Indigenous peoples, including the Nehio, Soto, Nitsitape, Métis, Dene, and Nakoda. We pay our respects to the ancestors past and present who call this land home.